Hello and welcome to the Stagey Place podcast. My name is Joseph Martin and I'm thrilled to be one of the new guest hosts of the show. Uh, this week you'll hear me talking to Ricky Dukes, the founder and artistic director of Lazarus Theatre Company, who are bringing their production of Hamlet to the Southwark Playhouse. Uh, you might notice that the internet was a little bit against us during this interview, uh, but do stick with it. Uh, we have a really, really interesting conversation, if I do say so myself, uh, and I look forward to seeing you more in future episodes to come. But for now, this is Ricky Dukes on the Stagey Places podcast. Hello, Ricky Dukes. Welcome to the Stagey Place. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm in a, quite a, a cold rehearsal room, but we're moving around doing some stage combat today. So um, the blood is now pumping. Excellent. Stage combat. That's really exciting. So uh, would you just uh, describe yourself for the listeners? Yes, I am. Oh, I'm a white man. Uh, I've got brown hair. Uh, fairly long and scraggy at the moment, sort of looking a bit King Lear-like, which is sort of a bit messy, stressful. I've got quite a big beard, again, a little bit King Lear-like, like the square he's on the heath and he's gone mad and it's all a bit crazy. And I'm currently wearing a black jumper, you know, proper sort of theatre style. And um, I've also got glasses, black, quite thick ring, um, framed glasses. How very Shakespearean and how very appropriate for, for what we'll come on to talk about. I am also a, a white man, short brown hair. Uh, today, I am wearing, despite it being January, I, I still think it's it's Christmassy. Um, I am wearing a green Christmassy jumper with horn or trumpet on it, some holly, and it says joy, because that's what I feel in the wintertime. So, Ricky, Hamlet, that is what we're here to talk about, uh, coming to the Southwark Playhouse, uh, January the 12th until February the 4th. Um, you said you're you're in a stage combat fight call today. How are preparations going? Uh, they're going really well. They, um, it's a bit of a mammoth, this play, to say the least. It's, there's lots, lots and lots to do. And it's been strange rehearsing over Christmas. It's It sort of felt a little like as the rest of the world was winding down, we were sort of trying to ramp up. But good, it feels slightly different angle that we're taking to this uh, I suppose, from most productions. There feels something, a, a slightly different energy about it, a different feel about it, which is, I think, the cast are now running with and, and ready to go for. So we are ready, I think. Excellent. I, I, I do think, actually, rehearsing in the wintertime for Hamlet being the Prince of Denmark, actually, if anything, is going to make it feel more Scandinavian. I was in Sweden in December where my um, my in-laws live and, you know, sort of walking through the snowy forests and all that kind of stuff. Maybe it's it's actually kind of the, the perfect setting, you know. I, I, and you've mentioned there's, there's a lot of different concepts, things to get on boards with. And, and this is something that really, really intrigued me when I read about um, Lazarus Theatre's production of Hamlet, because obviously it's a very classic piece of theatre. There's so many quotes, there's famous moments, you know, so many iconic actors in the roles. It's been put on a, a, you know, a lot of times over however many hundred years. So what makes Lazarus Theatre's interpretation unique? What what should audiences expect to see that maybe they haven't seen before? Uh, well, I first thing to say, our first day of rehearsal was the big snow day. So you're absolutely right. There was something very different than sort of European Scandinavian <laughs> about it and the very low side light. So, you know, by 2pm, the rehearsal becomes a bit bleak, a bit quite moody. But yes, yeah, so we've been channeling that into it. I suppose the first thing to say is that our adaptation is from the perspective of young characters. So effectively, what we've done is we've found a device that encapsulates all the adult characters, but the audience experience the story from the young people's 
perspectives. There's two kind of big things, I suppose, comes out of that. One, our production's a lot shorter than most. So it's around 90-ish, 95 minutes. So pretty pacey. And two, I suppose, the audience experiences everything in the play as the young people experience it. So, of course, Shakespeare uses a dramatic irony device that the audience feels like they're very often one step ahead. Of course, that makes audience feel intelligent and we quite like it because we know what's going on <laughs> whereas this one's going to be interesting to sort of see the revelations happen in front of us and we're there with the young people so it, it's thrown up huge 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 exciting discoveries characters that in a full-length version you sort of you might not note as much i'm thinking particularly of characters like rosencrantz and guildenstern yes. who sometimes in productions feel nothing really more than a kind of sort of duo that pops in and out but because the adults have gone we've got sort of space to really explore those relationships between those characters and between the two of them and between the two of them with hamlet and you just start to see things in the relationships between these young people that i've never actually seen before you know it's certainly in a four and a half hour version where you feel it's a bit like a marathon yes you know? absolutely it was that a sort of a conscious decision where you went we want to do something different with this actually this is quite an interesting side to it was it a happy accident or was this very much a this is a story that needs to be told because we haven't seen it from this angle well so what a bit of a story for you here joseph mm. but Essentially, I'll settle in. Uh, and get I was comfortable. asked to direct a production um, uh, with a group of third-year acting students at a university. I was sort of throwing all these obscure Caribbean play in the mix. Should we do this? Should we do this? And we kept going back and forwards about titles. And then I sort of just threw in, I don't quite know why really, but I just threw in, what about a Hamlet, a sort of ensemble approach to Hamlet? And the head of actors went, yeah, that, do that. And then straight away went, oh my God, I'm going to have to now think about how to Hamlet. And it's been a play that actually, as a company, we've sort of avoided. And mainly because, well, I suppose two points, really. Firstly, not really knowing who your Hamlet is. <laughs> so you can't really centre a production around that actor. Also, because I think there's some quite specific things about Hamlet. For me, he does need to be young, 21. Um, and then really just sort of going, have we got anything to add to the production history or the, the play's discourse? It's never felt that we really did. So I went in and met these these great young actors in their third year. And I just thought, how on earth are you going to do Hamlet with this bunch of 21-year-olds? It also had to play as part of a festival, so it couldn't be any more than 90 minutes long. And so what I did is I went home after meeting them all, and I thought, I can't ask a 21-year-old to play Polonius, who's, you know, in his 70s or 80s. <laughs> There's just no element of truth that's no. going to be able to be played. I mean, that's pretty impossible, actually. So I went home and I thought, what if I just see if we just focus it on the young people? So I got a I got a Word document version of this and I just highlighted everything the adults say in red. And then I deleted it all and moved it to another document. And brilliantly, the remaining text was at Arial size 12 was around 35 pages, 90 minutes of stage time. So there's a sort of light through the window kind of fine moment, that kind of, you know, <laughs> oh, kind of, you know, angel sang. And so um, I went in and did this, this, this drama production. It was utterly revelatory, things that I'd never seen in a play before. People, these young actors brought out with this edit. And so I spoke to the rest of the Lazarus team and said, well, actually, maybe it's time for us to do mm. a professional production of it based on that production. And there's things that are different and things that have expanded and developed. Awesome. But yeah, yeah, so no, it was never on the list. In fact, it was on the list of not to do. I mean, but um, sometimes that's what presents the, that's... the best kind of challenges, isn't it? The things that you yeah, think you maybe shouldn't good. touch, and then it pre an opportunity presents itself like that. Yeah. How did it? How did it feel to to cut William Shakespeare? 
One of the things that people say you should never do. Oh, it's so easy. And I think sometimes we overpressure, you know, people get precious about it under a no illusion that the versions we have are not what's necessarily performed in Shakespeare's day because they were never written down in full when he was alive. No. So we don't have a, a signature sort of stamp. This is exactly how King Lear was. So I've got no problem cutting the plays and I, I'm not sure anyone really wants to see in a four and a half hour version of Hamlet. And so so I think this, I think adapting and editing and cutting and it can bring new perspective. Oh, I've got no pressures about getting the pruning knife or sometimes the machete and cutting stuff. No problem at all. I think that, I think that's exactly the right the right way to be right we don't we, we we don't really treat any other texts like that at all so you know don't get me wrong i know shakespeare is, is shakespeare but it shouldn't necessarily be any different you say about making it kind of for for modern audiences do you think that then makes it in turn more accessible for younger audiences people who are discovering shakespeare like do you think that shakespeare is potentially as inaccessible as some young people think it is well i suppose just throw a caveat in there i suppose is like i'm also trying not to patronize people I certainly after covid a capacity to sit in a theater for that length of time i've seen it when i go to the theater people just the capacity of concentration is just a bit shorter than it was pre Yes. And you might say, oh, that maybe the production isn't as exciting, but it's also a mammoth of a task for the actors as well, holding and sustaining up for four hours. And again, it's not to say that they can't do it. it there's just something about um, deciding to where to put your energies. Mm-hmm. I reckon about accessibility to Shakespeare is how people experience it. If you study it as I did as part of your English GCSE and you watched some old 1970s video, you had to pass the, the script round and you read a couple of lines, the next person read a couple of lines. Well, no wonder it didn't make any sense because you're just passing it around, just reading some words on a page. But if you're lucky and a great English teacher and hopefully the drama department gets involved, if you're lucky enough to have a drama department anymore mm. in schools, and they'll take you to go and experience it and they'll get it up on their feet and it's not written to be read it's written to be performed and in body and so I, I suppose it depends on how you come to it my feeling is if it's fresh and alive and it's got some urgency some energy and you don't have to worry about that anymore you just go i understand i might not understand every word but i get the sense and i understand the dilemma or the predicament or the urgency or the thing that they're they're communicating absolutely complete agreement i couldn't agree more <laughs> what we love to know on stage places where did your work in theatre begin? Like, what, what, what's your kind of your earliest memory of thinking? Yeah, this this is what I want to do. Was it always directing, or did it enter through another path? I think it was quite late actually, because um, my sort of the earliest sort of theatre going experience was the local panto um, with my nan in the Midlands at the Wolverhampton Grand Theatre, a little shout out to them. And so we used to just go every year to the panto and I sort of as a kid used by, I always remember panto one year of, of Babes in the Wood. And there was a moment at the beginning where the, the the gauze was the sort of front cloth and then up went the the black behind it and you could just see this world behind it through this sort of gauze with smoke and you know and then the gauze would go up and you just oh, this is so exciting just watching this thing like just i know it might sound a bit daft but just watching a sort of spectacle of like cur- huge scenery going up and down and i was just sort of amazed by this sort of like world that you could create but it was never something i thought you could or you know you didn't know how you did it as a, a kid I always said I for some reason wanted to be a teacher and so that was just my sort of <laughs> how do I become a teacher so and I knew how to do that because you could ask a teacher right and they could tell you well what you do is this that and the other and then I was it wasn't until sixth form that we had a great English teacher who took us to see uh the RSC was doing a production of the Venice and they were touring them uh, touring it around the UK and um, we went to see and that was my sort of first experience of Shakespeare really which is 
well, live Shakespeare. I mean, we, as I said, we'd, we'd done the bit where we'd read the play and, you know, pass it around in class or Romeo and Juliet. And, you know, the teacher would just say, remember this bit because it'll be an exam. And so it wasn't until sixth form, really. And we were doing English literature. And, you know, this is a comprehensive school in the Midlands. And this brave, I, I don't think he was brave now, took us on a minibus, you know, 30 of us, rowdy, sort of noisy all kids, and took us to see this play. And, and I think out of the 30, maybe two or three of us got it. And we went back to class and I just for some reason I just went, oh God, I think I understand this. And so I sort of then just started thinking, God, this is this is great, you know, but still not really feeling there was a, a way in. And so anyway, I went to university and before I went to university in Worcester, a teacher, a tutor said, don't go and do a teacher training degree, go and do a subject that you're interested in, you really love, and then do your teacher training. Because that way you get two qualifications and you get to explore other things in terms of the subject you really love. So I went and did drama and performance studies at the university of Worcester and still for teach training qualification after that and again talking about instrumental people in your life teachers um a, a tutor a lecturer there said um actually have you ever thought about doing this professionally and I sort of laughed and said you know no one from Wolverhampton mm-hmm. or Dudley ever gets into theatre and she, and she said, and I always remember, she went, of course they do. You know Lenny Henry. Anyway, she helped. And she said, this is how you apply to a drama schools. This is how you do this. And she's at Liz Swift, her name. So shout out to Liz Swift. She totally helped. And this is what an audition is and how you would. I mean, it sounds silly, really. Uh, if you don't know what an audition is or or how to apply for something, then, you know, you can go and find out where do you begin? And, you, you know, I think we all need someone in life to just signpost us and support. So I did an actor and then very quickly became maybe a little bit disillusioned as an actor. I was sort mm. of getting work that wasn't sort of work that really sort of gave me a buzz. And then someone said, well, why don't you put your where your mouth is and set up a theatre company and start making work? And, and I said, I don't really want to start a company because that's the thing that people who can't get work do, which is really snobby. And anyway, I thought, well, there's the task. And we did. And we, on off we went. And that was 15 years ago. Um, so it's never, it was never something I thought you could do um, until I suppose you experience or you meet people who go, oh, you can. You just have to do this, this and this. And and hopefully that's something that we've kept in the company of supporting emerging artists of any age. Actually, you don't have to be young to be an emerging artist, any age yeah. for people to sort of have a chance or an opportunity to get into it. Do, do you think that's, that's kind of the, the main aims or, or objectives of, of Lazarus and what you want to do with your work? Is it to support new emerging artists? It, what what makes Lazarus Theatre Lazarus Theatre? Well, I suppose it's part of it. I mean, I guess the fundamental first point of it is that we are a classics company, but we look at the plays pretty much like they're new. So essentially what we do process, a kind of dramaturgical process really is, is just ex- re-examine the play again. I say quite a lot of rehearsals, you know, what are the myths? Let's bust some myths. People nine times out of ten tell me, oh, it's about the witches. And you sort <laughs> of go, well, it isn't really about witches. The witches, of course, and we remember them because they're fun and they're great, yes. you know, they're theatrical. But it's not really about that. So I'm just really intrigued how we as humans kind of take on this sort of emotional baggage or this... Um, or the baggage of kind of, oh, I saw a production, that's what they did with it, and it stays with them. Yeah. Whereas I think we've got the chance to re-explore them. Um, so that's really the core, is taking these 
a, a kind of cultural heritage, if you like. Yeah, sure. Bringing people in who's, you know, maybe not had a voice in that. And we're expanding out of classics as well. And we're, we're at the moment developing a brand new play, but epic in scale as a classic. So it's got a big company. It deals with political, nice. social stuff. I mean, that sounded boring, dealing with political and social stuff. It's actually quite funny. But, you know, something <laughs> of an epic Brechtian scale, that kind of big, big company work. That's the stuff that really, in rehearsal, really gets me going. Like you're there and you're like, God, this, this is this feels big it feels sizable and spectacle and there's drama and it's high stake that's the stuff you know this kind of drama that's bordering on big sort of epic almost sort of musical theater in a way that when you're getting people into the theater you sort of go what is it that we can do that netflix or cinema can't Mm. do and the thing we've really the only thing we've got i suppose is the shared experience and you don't have to have a big ensemble to do that you can be it can be a one-person play absolutely but there's something about the epic sort of sweeping political sort of big sort of meaty stuff it's just incredible you know to be in the room and feel like you're part of some sort of revolutionary or exciting or political, you know, there's something um, big and dramatic about it. And so I suppose from a, a point of view from audiences is that that's what you get with the Lazarus show. You know, you you get tail and you get this sort of epic, this big theatrical experience, which is really, really expensive. You know, back in the day, we were doing things like profit share and things like that. Yeah. And you go, that's just not sustainable. We can't do no. that. And we've developed that and it's taken time and it's probably taken longer than it should have taken. But we're in a position now where everyone's, well, no one's on the dollars, of course, but, um, mm-hmm. but you know, we're, we're, the company feels more sustainable and more solid and we can invest in the work from that point of view. So yes, I think there has been a big change, certainly since the pandemic, actually, how we work with people, supporting people, and that's just paying people properly, looking after people yeah. um, and investing in them. <laughs> <laughs> research and development stuff, R&D, rather than just going into a rehearsal room and hoping for the best, like actually invest in the people that you're creating the work with. There might be people listening to this going, well, sure, of course you do. But actually, there's so little money knocking around. It's so yeah. blumming difficult to do that. Um, yeah, and, and that's the bit that no one really, I mean, there's so much stuff in this industry, I think, that no one really tells you how to do it. But when it comes to the sustainability and the funding, and like, how do you actually make this a full-time job creating your own work? That's the bit that's, that no one ever really tells you because everyone just kind of figures it out as they go along. That actually leads me on wonderfully to, to my next question. What do you say? What would you say to listeners? What do you say to people already who are thinking of creating their own company who maybe have that attitude that that you did originally about what that means or or indeed becoming a director like what is the stuff that you wish that you were told when you were starting out well the first question I probably ask myself now looking back was uh, why you know particularly from a director's point of view why do you need to be a company to do the work that you want to do because not all directors want to work in a sort of company format and I mean companies in limited by guarantee and I also mean companies in a group of people and in fact I was talking to a, uh, an emerging director the other day actually about this and, she, and she's setting up her own company I said but why are you setting up the company and she said oh, to facilitate my work I'm like okay I get it and you know why so that's great to, to start your own theatre company what does being a company allow you to do and do you need to take on all financial stuff you could be a cracking artist that doesn't necessarily mean you're a very good business person I mean that's true for everyone it's not exclusive but that's often the case that's you want to be in a rehearsal room creating something and then you have to you know do 
tax and stuff. So it's basically, so it's basically if you want to start a company, I would look at other companies that you admire or you think there's something interesting in them and I'd reach out to them. And that's something I was given advice to, you know, well, why don't you, you know, going back to the scenario of going to drama schools, why don't you contact actors who've been to drama schools and ask them what they've done? And most people in our industry, I think, are good enough to at least give you half an hour 45 yes. minutes of their time yep. just reach out sometimes it feels a bit eggy and embarrassing or you know you know there's people on my list that i'd really love to reach out to that you go oh you know you feel eggy and a bit sort of weird mm. about reaching out to them but you think just do it just if you can't find people's emails addresses find out where they're working don't sort of stalk them but no you know there's big direct I've written to in the past and the way I've got in contact with them is sending the letter to the theatre they're doing something and stage door will pass that on and just finding the means to get in contact and I suppose the same could be said about becoming a director reach out to directors who you admire like is there something about their work because a director she just maybe go oh my god you can this epic thing production of St. Joan and the Olivier and that production was just I thought absolutely breathtaking I was like how does she do this what's she doing and so I just sort of stalked Marianne Elliott's work for mm-hmm. years I just would, would go with the first preview of War Horse, her first preview of Women Beware Women. She did an All's Well That Ends Well. Just yeah. just being there, experiencing her stuff. And then I finally reached out to her, you know, like a little a sort of fanboying. Hello, Marianne. <laughs> you just reach out and ask. And Marianne was so generous. She gave me three hours of her time. Boy, at the National. She was rehearsing um, an Alan Eightboard at the time. She went, I must go. The actors will be thinking where I am. So I suppose that's it, really. And 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 I was told that, I suppose, at the start, was just, just ask. They also become your next network you know yes. um you know there's a great director people i'm sure will know tim sheeder at the open air regents park i think there's loads of people out are interested like that but i think it's probably important that you have to be genuinely interested in them yeah, absolutely because if you want to spot that you know i can spot it when people just want a job and i can spot it when people are genuinely interested in you're doing and then you have that shared passion and you go I love that too you can exchange tools techniques experiences and passion that's the stuff that keeps you going you know when you're up at 3am doing a spreadsheet you think why am I doing this I've got no you know and the sacrifices you make in your personal life it's got to be worth it and it's those relationships and networks that that keep you going absolutely I, I also i'm so pleased that you shout out marianne Elliott because she that was some of my biggest breakthroughs in wanting to be an actor and a creative as well was seeing her work so absolutely massive shout out whoops i moved my microphone massive shout out to, to marianne yeah. Elliott. so ricky our final question of of the podcast um our final question for guests is is always the same so just like the title of the podcast uh where is your stagey place so this could be a theater that you visited as a child or a venue you've worked in and really loved a person a place or a thing that's inspired you in your career i mean the list is endless so ricky jukes where is your stagey place? I'm glad you said the list is endless. I've got a list, if that's allowed. Oh, I would get, yeah, go on. Go on. Why not? <laughs> you know, my first stagey place, I suppose, it would be Wolverhampton Grand Theatre for, you know, the, the pantos. And I think sometimes pantomime um gets a bit of, I don't know, a bit of a raw deal, a bit of a Of course, it absolutely gets a raw deal, but it's so but it is so much fun. Get over yourselves and yeah, enjoy some pantomime. So for- I would say the vast majority of people, I don't know the numbers, actually, that's a sweeping statement, but I would imagine from talking to people, experiences, Panto's their first theatrical experience. Yes. yes. 
And that should definitely not be ridiculed. That's, that's, that, I mean, if you were to write an Arts Council application for audience engagement, in fact, maybe Panto producers should do that. It's yes. such a fantastic new audience engagement thing. So big up the Warvo Grand. The, the next place I would say is um, there's a theatre called the Blue Elephant Theatre, which is in Camberwell. Not sure people know it, but mm-hmm. uh, a nice, beautiful, intimate little space. 56 Studio Theatre. Artist director called Jasmine Cullenford. And she sort of... She was one of the women, there's been some instrumental women actually, Jasmine Culliford is a wonderful producer called Kerry Irvine, and then there's a great artist to Kate Banner. These three women gave us what I consider our kind of first gigs really, whether that be a performance or first full production, mm. was really the massive testing ground for us, as well as the Broccoli Jack in, uh, funnily enough, Broccoli, uh, huh. where we got to test out this ensemble stuff with the complete support of the management who i don't know why or what but they must have seen something in this ensemble company created some crazy i mean there's crazy stuff we created at, at those two venues these intimate spaces but sort of quite epic big ambitious stuff and without them and this is a real sort of i suppose flag raiser for the fringe we've really got to be careful because those opportunities i'm not sure it completely exist anymore mm. and so i'm a massive advocate for the fringe and experiment and that experiment can be you know someone with a bucket of sand experimental theater yep. and then i suppose it was two spaces that i would absolutely that just it doesn't matter what the show is i just sit in the auditorium and go oh this is bliss and it would be the Olivier in the National and the open air Regent's Park and it doesn't matter what I see at either of those well I say that actually I've seen some dodge in the Olivier even (laughs) when I've been sitting through a dodgy thing in the Olivier I find myself measuring up. I mean, my process, I mean, you know, I'm a bit more sort of as a director now, I'm quite Brechtian inspired. So it's sort of stripping things back and revealing things. Gauze is probably something I don't really use anymore. But but the essence of that man, the body in space mm-hmm. and that shared connection between the, the performer telling a story to a large group of people. I suppose the Olivier in the open air, I've never had an experience at the open air where I haven't felt that. The thing about being in that space. Yeah. You just, and of course, it's outside, but but you're still in a space, honest, I suppose. And the same with the Olivier; it feels honest. It's concrete. It's brutal. The open air is open air. It's it's there's no ceiling. It's just honest. And mm. and the actors who embrace honesty, it's me and you in this space. It just feels like some of the greatest work I've seen is when that book just acknowledges that's all we really need. Sure, let's have a revolve sometimes, and it's yeah, nice in the Olivier when they do the lift. Lovely, a big <laughs> lift. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not entirely beyond the spectacle, of course. <laughs> yeah. And hey, look, if it's a bad production, then a little lift, you know, just wakes you up. It just goes, oh, that's something it nice to look at. <laughs> yes, it certainly does. Yeah. There's one show I could think of quite recently where the little lift woke me up. Those are my stagey places. You know, the scale of those venues, you just go, yeah, there's something really big public, yeah. sort of democratic, really exciting theatrical spaces. I, I love all of those. The, yeah, the, 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 the stagey places, it seems like a, a gorgeous way to wrap it up. Um, Ricky Dukes, thank you so, so much for joining us. Um, Remind us where, when, how, etc. can we see Hamlet? So come down to the Southwark Playhouse uh, on the 12th, first preview, and we run till February the 4th. Uh, previews are all uh, just quid, so we want to get as many people in uh, at that accessible price. Hopefully, that's you know that's as sort of accessible as we can go so to get people in. And then we're also, if you're not in London, we're also streaming 
the production on February the 9th, worldwide, everyone. <gasps> well, worldwide. I know, international. Access that. And all the information is on our website. So if people just go to www.lazarustheatrecompany.co.uk, it's all there. Fabulous. Excellent. Ricky, thank you so, so much for joining us. And, and best of luck with Hamlet. It sounds absolutely fabulous. My thanks to Ricky Dukes for joining us on this week's show. That's it for this episode of The Stagey Place. Uh, thank you very much for listening. If you want to find out more about the podcast, you can find us at The Stagey Place on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and if you want to find out more about me, uh, I'm an actor, creative, co-founder of Awkward Productions Theatre Company. Uh, you can find me at Suddenly Joseph on Twitter, Instagram, and, uh, and I will see you next time. Thanks. <laughs>